right. Well, good morning, First McKinney Baptist Church. I am so very excited to be here with you today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Today is a very, very special day. Uh, as Pastor Sam mentioned, uh, my son turns four years old today, and uh, my daughter is five, and uh, they're over in the children's ministry right now, being ministered to in their own way. And so, um, just so very honored to be here and privileged. Uh, thank you, Pastor Sam, uh, for inviting me here. I consider it an honor to be able to stand here and share this pulpit. Uh, it's wonderful. I feel at home because um, I grew up in a Baptist church, and so all these hymns I know, I grew up singing them. Uh, my mother and my father, uh, they also grew up Baptist. They were here in the previous service. And my mom, I could see her over there. She was just fitting right in. She was, oh, thank you, a church that still sings the hymns. <laughs> so she was really having a good time. And, um, and so I uh, also would like to thank my, my beautiful wife who is here today and uh, is always just a constant source of support for me and the ministry. And so just so honored to have her here as well. Uh, so uh, this morning, uh, and oh, also once again, um, I'm reminded of the fact that I've, I've really had an op opportunity and an honor to, to teach many of your children uh, as I served at McKinney Boyd for 10 years teaching high school math. And so I've already seen some familiar faces um, since I've been here, and I look forward to hopefully uh, seeing a few more after this service is over. So we've been in a series uh, in Romans, and uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. And um, I have to say that initially, whenever I got this passage of Scripture assigned to me, I was like, oh man, uh, one week off. Why couldn't I have come next week when I could preach on Romans 12? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, in the view of the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, and acceptable. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and all that stuff. And I was like, wait a second. Most Christians have heard a sermon on that. I get the privilege and the unique opportunity to present a portion of Scripture that is seldom read and therefore seldom preached in the church. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to be reading from the uh, Christian Standard Bible and uh, beginning in verse 25. I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. But regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs. Since God's gracious gifts and calling, skip there. All right, there we go. Since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience. This thing doesn't seem to be flipping here for some reason. 
All right, let me keep going. So they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you so that they also may now receive mercy. For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much today for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to really understand it. I pray that you would empower me, Lord, to preach a message that is clear, one that is accurate, one that is relevant, and one that is interesting. God, may you go before us and prepare our hearts for your word today, that the word of God may fall on good soil. We ask all these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of Romans was largely responsible for what was most likely the most significant event in church history, the Protestant Reformation. This one event changed the landscape of the Christian faith forever. Towards the beginning of the 16th century, there was a man by the name of Martin Luther, and he was a professor at a seminary in Wittenberg, Germany. And as Luther, along with his students, they began to read the book of Romans, and they started to set aside everything that they had previously taught, been taught, rather, by the Roman Catholic Church about how a person was to be saved. And Luther experienced, as he refers to it, as this, this inner freedom that he had never experienced before, having now, for the first time in his life, truly understood the nature of the gospel. And he started to experience this liberation from all of the doubts and the agonies and the frustration of his soul as he was trying to live up to this perfect standard of what he thought he needed to experience in order to actually receive salvation from God. And as he studied the book of Romans, he started to see some significant differences, some significant contradictions, if you will, between what he was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church and what the Bible was actually saying with regard to salvation. Until one day he mustered up enough courage to lead a movement of people to protest against, and not necessarily to break away, but to reform the Catholic Church, which is where we get the phrase, the Protestant Reformation. And Luther's message was quite clear. Salvation is not achieved by merit or works. Man cannot be justified by works. Man is saved by grace through faith alone. And this message began to reverberate, this message began to resonate with other believers in the Roman Catholic Church who lived under the same constant pressure of having to perform, having to work, having to earn their salvation. 
And slowly, more and more people started to break away from the Roman Catholic Church and became Protestants. And to Luther's admittance, it was the book of Romans that was largely responsible for his understanding, so much so that Luther wrote this about the book of Romans. He says here, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day. And then he goes on to say, as the daily bread of the soul, we can never read it or ponder over it too much. For the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And so the book of Romans is considered by some theologians to be the greatest theological work that has ever been written. Now, we don't want to assume that you've been with us throughout this entire series here as we've been preaching through the gospel according to Paul, as I like to call it, or the book of Romans. And so we want to just provide just a short little brief backdrop to see how we got to where we are now. And so in chapter 1 of Romans, in chapter 1 of Romans, we see that God is basically saying that I am unveiling or unleashing all of my wrath because you Gentile Christians have been sinful. And even non-Christians, Gentiles in general, have been sinful. And as a result of that, in response to that, I am going to unleash all of my wrath under, on all on godlessness and unrighteousness to people who suppress the truth. And then he comes back anticipating that the Jewish people would be like, ah, okay, you Gentiles are in trouble. But he says, no, 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 you Jewish people are just as sinful, if not more, because you have had all the privileges of having the Old Testament, you've had the prophets, you've had the covenants, you've had the promises of God, you've had all these things, and yet you all are guilty of doing the same things that the Gentile people are doing as well, and now you're standing in judgment, so I am also going to be in judgment against you. And then finally he comes back in chapter 3, and he says all of us have sinned, past tense, and present tense, continue to fall short of the glory of God. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, all of us are guilty. And so now the question becomes, what do we do about this? What is the solution? How do we fix this? How do we make this right? And so Paul now, in chapter 4, he talks about this idea of faith. And what he does is that he points back to someone who actually lived before the Old Testament law was given for Moses, proving that it's never been about obeying the law and keeping the law and doing all these things in order to earn salvation. No, no, no. He says, I'm going to take you back to somebody who existed before the Old Testament law, who his name is Abraham, and he says, Abraham is the prototype of how you get saved. He says, Abraham believed in God, he exercised faith, and it was credited to his account as righteousness. But then what are we having faith in, and how does this whole salvation thing actually work? He comes back in chapter 5 and he says, listen, just as there was one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. You say, well, that's not fair. I wasn't in the gospel. I mean, I mean excuse me, I wasn't in the garden, rather. I wasn't in the garden. So, so why should I have to pay the price 
for Adam's wrong decisions in the garden. He says, well, even though that's not fair, and even though we were not there, and the sin nature was passed down to us, in the same way, the good news is that through one righteous act, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, rectified or mended or made right what the first Adam did wrong. And so, in the same way, we were not on the cross. So even though we did not deserve the sinful nature passed down to us, we also do not deserve the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that was accomplished by Jesus Christ through his one act. But now you say, okay, well now that I'm saved and now I've placed my faith in Christ, what do I do with this? And Paul comes back and he says, well, you know what? Do not, I'll tell you what you don't do. Do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but instead rather offer yourselves to God. And you say, well, okay, well, that, that should be not that difficult, but oh, then there's this thing called the flesh. There's this thing called the sinful nature. And Paul says, you know what? Man, I, I would love to be able to offer myself to God. But he says, I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. And he finishes this chapter by saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who is going to rescue me from this body of death? And then he comes back in chapter 8, and he says, good news. God has not left you alone to figure this whole thing out. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to experience salvation. And so he says here, if you just put your minds on the things of the flesh, then you're going to live according to the flesh, and you're going to experience spiritual death. But if you put your mind on the Spirit, you will have life. And then that brings us to this next section of the book of Romans, which is the section that you've all been studying over the past few weeks, which is this uh, three-chapter section, uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so Paul anticipates that his audience is going to be asking the question, well, you've been talking all this stuff about salvation, salvation for the Gentiles, but what about us as Jews? What about, what about us? Does God still have a plan for us as well? I mean, has God just kind of thrown us away and put us aside, or does God actually have a plan in place for us? And this is the backdrop to our text today. And so what I want to do is I want to provide an exposition for you, verse by verse, of Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 36. But then we really need to ask and answer the question, what do I do with this? I mean, if, if you're like me, you might be reading the, the, the initial scripture at the beginning when I read it all, and you're thinking, okay, wow, okay, how do I apply that to my life, and what in the world does all of that mean? So I want to highlight four things towards the end of this message that I think we can apply to our daily lives. Okay, so now let's jump in to verse 25. And notice it says here, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now when Paul wants his audience to truly understand something and to truly embrace it and to truly get it, he uses this phrase, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you to be ignorant of this. As a matter of fact, he used this phrase earlier in the book in Romans chapter 1. He says, now I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now. He says, hey, I, I don't want you to think that I did not want to visit you. 
He says, but I, I've wanted to come to you. I still want to come to you, but I've been hindered from being able to come to you. And I want you to really understand that, and I want you to get that. And then also elsewhere in another book, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware. If you know anything about the church at Corinth, it was a mess because they were misusing, misunderstanding, misappropriating the spiritual gifts. People were speaking in tongues. There was no interpretation. It was a mess. People thought that they didn't speak in tongues, that they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul said, I don't want you to be unaware of these things. And he says, I truly want you to get it. Now, what does Paul want them to get? He says here, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. Now, a mystery is something that God has previously kept hidden from all generations past, and now he is revealing to his people. I want you to think of a mystery as this breaking news. Let's say you turn on the television, and there's, news, there's a news story that is broken that no one has ever broken before, this is hot off the presses. This is breaking news. Paul says, what I'm getting ready to share with you is breaking news. Nobody has ever heard of this before. God has not revealed it to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He says, this is, I'm the first person that God has given the privilege and the honor of presenting this to you. And he's used this word mystery several times in his letters. One of the times that he uses it is in Ephesians chapter 3, and let's read about it. It says here, by reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, what is this mystery? He says, well, this was not made known to people in other generations, just as I said, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is this mystery? The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Wait, what? Wow. Like, no one could have ever predicted that in the Old Testament, that one day the Jews and the Gentiles would coexist in the same body and that Gentiles would be co-heirs of the promise of God. If you ask an Old Testament Jewish person, they would say these people are uncircumcised, they're dogs, they're pagan, they're sinful. There's no way that they could be part of God's plan. And Paul is now coming back and saying, listen, that's the mystery that was hidden from all of the other people in these previous generations, and God is telling me now to reveal that to you. But that's not the only time that Paul uses this idea of a mystery. What about the rapture of the church? He says in 1 Corinthians 15, listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In other words, Paul is saying not every single person who is alive is going to die. Some people are going to experience this, this transformation where we actually put on immortal bodies and imperishable bodies, and we are going to be raptured and caught up together to meet with Jesus in the clouds. He said that's a mystery. That's not something that has been shared before. Now, what is the mystery that he's going to share with the Roman church. Well, first, let's ask the question, why is he sharing this mystery? Well, he says right here, so that you will not be conceited. Now, it's very, very important for us to keep these pronouns uh, straight because you have to understand when he says, so that you, he's referring primarily to Gentile Christians because the Roman church at this time was comprised primarily of Gentile or non-Jewish believers. 
with some Jewish believers sprinkled in. So he says, I don't want you Gentile Christians to get the big head. Now, if I could use a sports analogy, he's anticipating that his Gentile believers are probably sitting around saying, you know what, you all used to be the starting quarterback, but you all could not throw, you could not read defenses, you fumbled the ball, you threw too many interceptions, you failed on your mission, and as a result, the coach had to sit you on the bench, broke, busted, and disgusted. I see y'all over there, and now we're the, we're the Gentile, we're the Gentiles, and, and, and we're, the, we're, the, we're this new starting quarterback, and God is going to use us as the instrument to, to shed light into the world and to share the gospel. And you Jews, you all are done. Stick a fork in you. God doesn't have a plan for you anymore because now he's using us Gentile Christians. And Paul says, wait, 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 slow down. Slow down. I'm going to share a mystery with you, Roman church, so that you Gentile Christians don't get conceited. Now, what is this mystery? Well, he says here that a partial hardening, he says here that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what is this hardening that he's talking about? Well, the Greek word for hardening is actually the word porosis, from which we get words like osteoporosis. And it's this idea that, generally speaking, the Jewish people have a heart that is hardened towards the gospel. They, 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 they do not receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and so their hearts are hardened towards the truth. Their hearts are hardened towards Jesus being the Messiah. But he says there's two things that I really want you to understand about this hardening. The first thing is that it's limited in its scope. In other words, not every single Jewish person has a heart that is hardened. The majority of them do, but not every single one. That's why he calls it a partial hardening. As a matter of fact, Paul is a perfect example of this. He himself is a Jewish believer. And so he says, this is a partial hardening. He says that not every single one, there are some that are going to believe. Paul calls this a remnant. God always reserves for himself a small number or a remnant of believers. But the second thing that he tells us about this hardening that the Jewish people are experiencing is not only is it limited in its scope, it's limited in its time. Notice it says here, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now what is he saying? He's saying that God has not abandoned his people forever, that it's not going to be this unlimited amount of time that the Jewish people are going to experience this hardening. It's only for a period of time until the final Gentile is saved, until God, God has a number in his mind of how many Gentiles is going to be saved, and once that full number of Gentiles has come in, then God is going to turn his attention back, and he is going to draw and woo his chosen people back in. And so now that brings us to a verse that has been debated again and again, verse 26, and it says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Now does this mean that every single person who has a Jewish descent is going to be saved just because they are a Jew? I mean, it says that all Israel will be saved. Well, what does this actually mean? 
Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that just because you've been born into Jewish descent, then all of a sudden you're going to be saved. If that were the case, that would be contradicting what Paul had already said in chapter 4, where he said the means to experience salvation is, was, and always will be faith in God. So what does this all mean? Well, we know that oftentimes it doesn't necessarily mean every single person or every single member, all right, because we can see that there's examples of this in the Bible. It says here in 1 Kings chapter 12, Then Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. Does this mean that every single person went to Shechem to make Rehoboam king? No, it just means a large group. All right, and then also in Matthew chapter 2, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Does that mean that every single person was disturbed whenever they heard of this birth of the king of the Jews? Jesus? No, a large group of them. As a matter of fact, it says this. Even a couple of verses before the chapter, or the verses that we're reading today, which you all studied last week, in verse 23, Paul says this. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in because God has the power to graft them in again. So he says, hey, yes, it's not just that they're going to be saved just because they're, they're Jewish. If they, don't, if they don't remain in unbelief, then yes, God will graft them back in again. Now Paul is getting ready to explain this further with a prophecy from Isaiah 59, verse 20. But before we get that, I really want to paint this picture and help us understand this by looking at a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12. And it's a beautiful picture of the type of work that God is going to do on the hearts of his own people. Notice what it says here. It says here in Zechariah chapter 12, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer on the house of David and the residents of Jerusalem, and they will look at me whom they pierced. Zechariah is, 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 is predicting that there will come a time in human history where the Israelite people will look with their eyes on the Messiah whom they have pierced, and they will be cut to the heart. They will experience this conviction knowing that they were the guilty ones that nailed Jesus Christ, who is the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. And they will have that understanding that what they did and how they rejected Jesus as Messiah, they have been in error all of this time. Zechariah says there will come a time when this will happen. And when it happens, this is going to be their response. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps for a firstborn. Zechariah is saying God is going to do such a spiritual work. He's going to do spiritual surgery on the hearts of his own people, so much so that one day when they see Jesus and they finally realize what they've done, they will mourn over their sin and return. And so now, going back to our chapter, how will God do this? Well, Paul says that in verse 26. He says, and in this way all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer, that's Jesus, will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Do you see the work that God is going to do in the lives of the people? He says, I'm going to deliver them of their godlessness. 
I'm going to do a work in their hearts to turn them away from their godly, godless ways. And this will be my covenant with them, so I'll enter into a covenant with them. We call that the new covenant, and I will take away their sins. Now, we don't have time to go into this idea of the new covenant, but if you want to go deeper into this idea of the new covenant, you can read more about that in Jeremiah chapter 31, but essentially the new covenant, which is the covenant that we are under by extension as the church, is where God will promise to give Israel a new heart. Because right now the heart that they have is opposed to the gospel. It is anti-gospel. They are rejecting the gospel. And, and God says, I'm going to give them a new heart, a fresh heart. Not a heart that just is going to think that all they have to do is obey the law in order to be saved. No, he says, I'm going to write my law on their hearts and I'm going to wash them from their sins. I'm going to cleanse them. I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to restore them spiritually. So now, Paul continues on here in this next verse. And he says, regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage. Now, what is he talking about? Remember, keeping the pronouns together. You refers to Gentile Christians. They refers to Jewish people. He says, right now, as I'm writing this letter to you, the Jewish people in general, because they have nationally rejected Jesus as the Savior, as it stands right now, they are enemies of the gospel. They are against the gospel. They oppose the message of the gospel. But then Paul comes back here, and he says that it's actually for their advantage. All right, because he says right here, he says, for your advantage. Now, what does he mean by that? He says, well, you know what? The fact that the Jewish people have rejected Jesus Christ as Savior has actually opened up the door for God to, to express his salvation and his mercy and save a mass number of Gentile people. So it's actually to your advantage, Gentile Christians, that these Jewish people are enemies of the gospel because if they had not ever rejected God, then we would not have seen this mass, exit, this, this mass conversion, if you will, where the gospel is being sent to people all over the world, to nations, to Gentile nations, to countries. Missionaries are going over. And we're seeing Gentile people come to Christ in mass numbers. And then he says this. He says, regarding the gospel... They are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved. Now, what is he saying here? He's saying that, yes, from your vantage point, Gentile Christians, these Jewish people are enemies of the gospel. But from my vantage point, from God's vantage point, they are elect. They are chosen. They are my, my people, and I still love them. Why do I love them? Because of the patriarchs. What is he saying? He's saying, because I made some promises to the fathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, because I covenanted myself to them, I have to fulfill these covenants. They are my chosen people, even if they reject me right now, even if they turn away, even if they have nothing to do with me, I am still in covenant with them. And what does he say about these covenants? He says that, God's gracious gifts and callings are irrevocable. He says, I can't take it back. 
I have entered into not a bilateral, but a unilateral covenant, which basically says even if they do wrong, think about, I want you to think of a unilateral covenant as guaranteed money in a sports, sports contract. When, when, when they give an athlete a guaranteed money, they're saying, I don't care if you can't play. I don't care if you have one leg. I don't care if you do really bad. We are giving you this money, and we are committing ourselves to you, and it's not contingent upon what you do. And in the same way, God is saying, that is the type of covenant that I've entered into. Now, what we see in these next couple of verses is literally four stages of all of human history broken down in just a couple of verses. Let's look at the first stage. Gentile disobedience. Notice it says here, as you, Gentile Christians, or Gentiles in general, once disobeyed God. So he says, hey, the, for the longest stage of human history has been Gentile disobedience. And so we see that's the first stage. But the second stage is Jewish disobedience. So he says here, so they, speaking of Jews, too, have now disobeyed. How did they disobey? By rejecting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so this is stage number two in human history. What's stage number three? Gentiles receive mercy. So in response to the Jews rejecting, the Gentiles then receive mercy. Notice it says here, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, Gentile Christians. And then moving on to the stage number four, which is a time in the future yet to come. The Jews will then receive mercy. So they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy. And so what is Paul's point overall? His point overall is that all of us are in desperate need of mercy, whether you are a Jew, whether you are a Gentile. We are all in desperate need of mercy, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience. Notice the phrase, so that, in order that, for the purpose of. God had a purpose so that no one could be in heaven and boast. God says, I'm, 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 I'm wiping the clay, slate clean to make sure that nobody in heaven is there because they think they're, they are on their own merit. No, Jew and Gentile alike, they're all in prison and disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. And then Paul, as he reflects on maybe his own grace story of how God had changed him from being a church persecutor to now being a church planter. And maybe he reflects on all of the things that he is sharing with them in the first 11 chapters of Romans. And then maybe he's thinking about just the few verses that he wrote in this passage. And if you can just imagine that Paul becomes so overwhelmed with his emotions, so overwhelmed with his love for God that he breaks out into his own version of the doxology. And Paul begins to sing, he begins to praise, and he says, Oh, the depths of the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, and how unsearchable his judgments, and untraceable his ways. He says, you know what, you can't figure God out, you can't trace his ways, you can't search his judgments, and he begins to praise the Lord. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has been his counselor? Nobody can give God counsel. Nobody can give God advice or tell him something that he needs to do. And he breaks out into this and he says, And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? 
if everything belongs to God, how can I give God something and expect him to give me something back as if he needs to repay me when everything that we have belongs to him anyway? And then he finishes this off and he says, For from him he is my source, through him he is my means, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And so this now concludes this section of Romans. But the question that we really need to ask is, what do we do with this? How do we actually apply this to our lives as believers? And I can say to you that as I was preparing for this message, I must have looked at about 15 different commentaries to try to figure out what this passage meant. And as sad as it is, not one single commentary out of 15 had one single point of application in it. May we never be so guilty of just reading the word and being content with getting head knowledge to where we understand what it says, but we have no plans to move that information from our head into our heart and ultimately into our hands. So I want to bring forth four attributes, characteristics, or qualities of God, very briefly, that emerge from this text that we need to emulate in our daily lives. And so the first is the love of God. The love of God. Now what we notice in this text is that the Jews and the Gentiles are very, very, very different, two, two, two very different groups of people. You have one group that was very highly religious, had all the prophets, the promises, the Old Testament law, they had the community, they had all the advantages that they needed to have a spiritual foundation. Then you have this Gentile group that Paul refers to as a wild branch. They're kind of out there, right? They don't have any sort of foundation. They're as different as night is from day. And yet God loves both groups equally. As spite of the fact that they are different from him, but then I'm going to go further. God commands these two groups to now love each other and to coexist in the same church, in the same community, and find a way to love one another. So the question is, what does that look like? What does that look like for you and I to emulate the love of God to people who are different than us? Well, let's look at a few ways that people in our community might be different from us. Political views. It's easy for us, whenever you have a certain political view, to, to, to treat someone who maybe doesn't see things the same way I do, or maybe they didn't vote the same way that we did, and maybe we don't embrace them with a loving attitude or a loving tone. Did you know that God loves people who voted for Joe Biden? <laughs> oh, equal opportunity. Hold on. Did you know that God also loves people who voted for Donald Trump? Yes. If God loves both of these people, we should also find a way to love them. Now, I don't mean embrace their beliefs. I'm not saying that we need to say, oh, okay, well, it's, it's, okay, it's okay for you to believe this. It's okay. I, I'm now. No, no, no. 
but can I treat this person with love, respect, dignity, and treat them as an image bearer of God? You know, it's so sad to me when I look online, on social media, and Facebook, and different other platforms, and I see Christians, people who say they are a follower of God, and I see how they are responding, the comments, the criticism, the snide remarks, the, the abrasive tone that they're using towards people who may be Christian, but maybe they aren't. And, and they're sending this example, oh, if that's how Christians are, why would I want to be a Christian? Because that's not loving. And, you know, you, you have people that are, that are, that we have the hats, we've got the, the signs in our, our, our yards, we've got the bumper stickers, we've got all these things, and we're very, very vocal about our political views. But are we that vocal about Jesus? Do we have a hat that says Jesus 2024, Right? Or do we have signs in our yard? Do we, do we, do we, oh, here's a good one. Do we express the same excitement in church as we do when we go to the rallies, right? And my point is that people believe different things. You don't have to embrace it, but we are called to love people in spite of their political differences. Here's another one, class differences. People who may look different than you, might smell different than you, maybe have a different educational background as you do, maybe they split their verbs whenever they talk, maybe their vocabulary isn't as vast as yours, maybe they grew up in a different side of the city, but can I love them and treat them with respect, honor, and dignity as an image bearer of God, even though they might be in a different class? Here's another one, theological differences. Man, there's people right in the church who cannot find a way to love one another, and they break fellowship with other Christians because they don't believe the same. Oh, well, I believe that women should be pastors. Well, I don't believe that they should. Okay, well, you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved. Well, no, no, you don't. Or, hey, uh, you can lose your salvation. No, no, you can't. Or uh, baptism needs to be by immersion. Oh, you can be sprinkling. And we're arguing over all these things. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't just... Uh, succumb to somebody else's position, but what I am saying is, really? Are we really willing to break fellowship with somebody over a theological issue just because they view things differently, or can we find a way to come together on common ground and celebrate the things that we do see in common and agree to disagree and still love one another? That's the question. Here's another one. Relational differences. This will hit home for a lot of us who are married. All right? My wife and I are just about as different as night is from day. I, I mean, we could not be more different. And somehow it works. By the, pray, praise God, all right? Seven years in, and somehow it works. But, but we are so very different. I'm an introvert. She's an extrovert. I'm a task-oriented person. I like to get things done. If I'm working, I don't want to be bothered. I got to check off everything, and I'm not really trying to have a lot of conversations. My wife, she's a relationship person, so she wants to talk while I'm trying to work. That's how she's wired, all right? I have to figure out how to love her, and she has to figure out how to love me. Why do you have to do all these tasks? I just want your time. So we have to figure out how to love one another. I'm a homebody. She likes to go out. For me, a vacation, a perfect vacation let me see if I show up, Pam. My perfect vacation is getting at an all-inclusive resort, laying by the beach for five days, having a drink or two, having a, just people just bring me all the food that I want. I've got my book. I've got my podcast. I'm not going out. I'm not leaving the resort. I'm good. That's, thank you, all right? I, got, I saw one person back there with their hand up. Okay. My wife, no, no, no. 
She wants to get off of the resort. She wants to try all the different foods. She wants to do zip lining. She wants to do excursions, horseback riding. She wants to just go all and explore and do everything. And we're different. I'm a stickler for time. My wife struggles a little bit with time management. All right. <laughs> you notice how I said that. She struggles a little, little bit. All right. But I'm going to now incriminate myself. I am naturally very selfish. And marriage has shown me that. But my wife, praise God, he's put me with somebody who is the epitome of selflessness. So the question is, can I love her without trying to change her into who I want her to be? And then moral differences. What if your sin story and your testimony is very different than someone else's? When somebody has a different sin struggle as we do, do we love and embrace them, or do we look like uh, that, that Pharisee in Luke chapter 7 who invited Jesus over to his home? And he said, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what sinful type of woman is touching him. And, 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 and so Jesus uh, embraced this woman who was washing her, his, his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. Or do we look at people with disdain like he did? So here's the first characteristic that I think we need to embrace as it relates to this text. Here's a second one. Not only the love of God that we see in this text, but the mercy of God. I want you to notice how many times in this passage the word mercy is said. It says here, so that, oh, let me go back here. It says here, at, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed resulting in mercy, number two, to you, so that they also may now receive mercy, number three, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. There's three words that we as believers need to embrace. The first is grace. Grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve, like our salvation. We like that. Justice is when God gives us what we do deserve. We don't like that. We don't want that, all right? Because if that was the case, we'd all be gone. But then there's this third word, mercy. And mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. And, he's, and that's the type of mercy that he's saying, I am giving it to Jews, to Gentiles, and basically to everyone. What does this mean for us in relationships? Sometimes when people sin against us, when they offend us, whenever they disappoint us, whenever they let us down, whenever they don't reach the expectation that we have, do we let them have it? Do we criticize them? Do we bring things up from the past? Do we just kind of just go all in on them? Or do we show mercy to them? And the same mercy that we would want somebody to share with us. I'm going to incriminate myself for just a moment. We just came back from New York City. And while we were there, uh, my wife, we were staying at Airbnb, and she offered to wash some of my clothes. I said, okay, good, that's fine, thank you so much. So there was a couple of shirts that I had, and uh, these shirts were already a little bit kind of small, so I was like, whatever you do, don't dry them, because I want you to kind of hang them air dry. I said, these two shirts right here, these are the ones. She said, okay, somehow or another, I don't know, somehow or another, she put one of those shirts in the washer and then just transferred right to the dryer, and sure enough, it was, it was, uh, uh, it was faded, and it was and it shrunk, and I don't know if I can wear it anymore, all right? And I'm not trying to be that guy with, like, the Schmedium shirt and stuff like that. Like, I, I'm not trying to be that guy, 
So I don't even think I could wear it. And I tell you, everything in me wanted to just let her have it. And I'll say for about 15 seconds or so, I did. And she's probably sitting there thinking, no, it was longer than 15 seconds. It was longer than 15 seconds. I don't know what he's talking about, right? But, but everything in me wanted to. And then at some point, as I was saying that, some things, they're like, man, why did you do that? I should have did myself, blah, blah, blah. And then immediately the Lord said, mercy, mercy. Give her mercy, the same mercy that you would want her to give you, which she always gives me whenever you offend or make a mistake. Mercy. Here's the third one. The integrity of God. What we see in this passage is God is a, is a man of his word. He is a God of his word. God said, you know what? Even though these people reject me, I am still going to fulfill my word to them because I made a promise, I made a covenant to them. How often do we say one thing and do something different? How often do we say to people, and I am so bad at this, I will pray for you, and then fail to pray for them. And it's really embarrassing whenever they come back and, and they say, oh, man, Brother Allen, thank you so much for your prayers. Man, I got that job. And I'm like, oh, jeez. I didn't even pray for you, but I'm glad you got that job, brother. Thank you. you know? and, and we say these things. <laughs> I know somebody else can relate to that. We say these things, or you know, we call somebody, we say, I'm going to call you back, and we don't call them back. Or I'm going to get with you next week, we'll get some lunch together, and we don't do that. And slowly we become men and women of not our word. And, and we can't be trusted. But God shows us in this passage that when he says something to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is going to fulfill that covenant. Here's the final one as we close. The sovereignty of God. And I think this is a good landing spot for us all today in this message. The first thing that we see about the sovereignty of God is that we can't understand God. It says here how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Listen, I don't know what you're going through right now. Whatever pain that you may be experiencing in your life, in your marriage, with your children, in your finances, in your business. It's easy sometimes for us to say, God, what are you doing? I can't figure out what you are doing because your ways are untraceable. I can't trace what you're doing. I can't really put the dots together. I love what the old people said. They said this, when you cannot trace God's hand, you can trust his heart. Maybe you don't know what God is doing in your life. Okay, but you can trust his heart for you. Not only can we not understand God, we can't advise him. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has, who, uh, has been his counselor? I can think of so many times in my life where I could have told you I know for sure what was the best thing for my life. And, and we think, man, I need to give God counsel. One of the things I love to do, I love to watch sports, and I watch sports all the time. And sometimes I'm the best sideline coach because I'm looking at these, the screen and I'm saying, he should have given him more playing time. They're running the wrong defense. They shouldn't have did that. They need to put this person in. They need to feature him. They need to double team him or whatever. And I'm telling this coach who just won like all these championships, in my mind, what they need to do. And then they win a championship and I'm like, oh man, I guess he knows what he's doing, right? And, and that's how I feel with God. That's how I feel. I know a lot of the guys are like, yeah, I do that too, right? That's how I feel with God. We try to give God advice and God is like, no, I, I, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. But not only that, we can't repay God. 
And this is so critical. For many years, I thought that God owed me something. You see, I was single until I was 40 years old until I married my wife. And so for many years as a single person, I thought, well, Lord, I'm giving you 20, 25 hours a week. I'm teaching the word. I'm traveling. I'm doing all these things. I'm living holy. You owe me a wife and you owe me family. And God is like, no, I don't owe you anything. And it's hard for us to embrace that. See, he says, and who has ever given to God so that he should be repaid? That's a hard truth for us to understand is that God doesn't really owe us anything. And so the final conclusion as we close this morning, Paul says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He said that's the final conclusion of this passage. And as we close, this book of Romans is really broken up into two parts like many of Paul's letters. The first half, he talks about the beliefs. And then he goes into the behaviors. Creed, then conduct, doctrine, then duty. And so this brings this passage, this part of the book of Romans to a close. And next week, you guys are going to pick up where Paul is going to say, hey, in view of all the mercies of God in the first 11 chapters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing, acceptable. I won't steal their thunder, but basically he is going to say, in light of what you believe, this is how you should behave. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you've made it so clear for us that um, you love people even though they are very, very different from you. And you've called us to love people who are different than we are. And you have demonstrated that through calling us to live in community with people who are different, Jew and Gentile. Help us to love people who are so vastly different from us in so many ways. Help us to love our spouse in the same home whenever there are so many differences. Lord, help us to express your mercy when we want to give people peace of our mind and remind them of how they messed up. May we not give them what we know and what they know they deserve. Lord, help us to be men and women of our word, to emulate the integrity of God. That people around us will know that when Alan says this, he is going to follow through. And finally, God, help us to accept the sovereignty of God. When we can't trace your hand, we can trust your heart. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray and give thanks. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.